Welcome to Dispatch Live. Another Tuesday, eight o'clock. Another scintillating conversation to come. <laughs> um, you will notice a different background. Those of you who uh, watch these regularly, I am not at a home office. Uh, I'm I'm improvising, and uh, sat down at seven fifty eight to to get ready. So a bit of a scramble on our end, but we're happy to have you. Happy to be after three it. after three hours of intensive research for Dispatch Live. You said hours of intensive. The good news is I I I listened to everything on the uh, in the hearing yesterday. I listened to it all live, um, and then last night. This is what a dork I am. I got home and I was flipping around looking for something to watch just to like you know unplug at the end of the night. Maybe a Dateline, um, something not very <laughs> serious. We unplug differently. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, we, we do. There was definitely, I didn't even consider sci-fi. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and flipping past C-SPAN, there was the hearing on replay. So what did I do? I watched it again, because why not? I knew we were going to be talking about it. Um, anyway, happy to be joined by David French, Sarah Isker. Sarah wants to make fun of me. Go ahead, Sarah. I know there's something coming. <laughs> just, I'm, I'm, I'm saddened that that's what you did with your evening. I feel like if you had just, you know, gone on Slack or our text chain that we have, David and I could have provided you with better options. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I got to hang out with my wife and the kids for most of the night. So this was really just sort of the fall asleep thing. But then I thought the actual hearing there's was wordle. There's wordle. Can't do there's wordle. working no. moms on Netflix, new season. There's a no. lot. Really? No, the boys on Amazon Prime. If you're if you like superhero content that's extraordinarily gruesome, but I'm an adult. <laughs> oh, oh, why would I want superheroes? Oh, oh, oh shots fired me, at me and Jonah. Want superheroes? At me and Jonah, shots were fired. I know. I I, I expect I'm going to have that come back and and bite me at some point. Um, let's jump into it. I, I think there's a lot to discuss. I've been, um, you know, in our in our. Uh, intra dispatch conversations, Slack emails. Uh, I've made it pretty clear that I, I'm actually sort of surprised that the amount of new substance that's come out from the committee. Um, and I think the committee has a chance to have a greater impact on the public debate about all of this stuff about election integrity than uh, than I anticipated going in. And I think that the conventional wisdom has it, but I'm prepared to be persuaded that I'm wrong. I've, I I've been have wrong a question before. for you. Okay. You've never been wrong before. I can't think of any <laughs> instances. Um, the abuse I take. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that the committee is setting out to prove, which isn't even necessary in my view, is that Donald Trump and his team knew that the election had not been stolen and that they were trying to stay in power despite that. Yeah. Versus uh, proving, for instance, that um, Donald Trump thought the election was stolen and it wasn't stolen. And that's how January 6th happened. Frankly, I mean, I guess I think that the first one is worse, but the second one's not good either. Right. Um, you know, are you dumb or evil? I, I don't really want either <laughs> as a president. So, um, Okay, but they are trying to prove the first one that Donald Trump, in fact, knew that uh, there was nothing wrong with the election results, but wanted to stay in power anyway. And there evidence for that that I've seen, um, for instance, the fundraising numbers, the grift, right, that they raised $250 million uh, in the wake of the election and don't actually spend any of that money on legal challenges. Um, okay, I guess I don't find that persuasive in terms of them not thinking the election is stolen because of the sort of overarching fundraising strategy that they had had for the last four years of the administration. That wasn't particularly new. They're being sued for fraud for those like donor, um, uh, you know, donate today and an anonymous donor will match your donation by five and like that those things aren't by true. five by like 100, I think, right, by, by the end of the campaign, by 437, right? whatever it is. Um, and then you have Bill Barr's testimony where he says he told the president that the election wasn't stolen and the president seemed detached from reality, I believe were actually Bill Barr's words, which people have 
used to say that, see, Donald Trump knew the election wasn't stolen. But to me, that means, I guess, really, it's not evidence of either. If you're detached from reality, you know, and someone tells you it's Tuesday, you could still, you could know that it's Tuesday and not want to believe that. Or you could be detached from reality and really believe it's Wednesday. So I'm curious, Steve, where you think the best evidence is for that, if you think they've proven that and like what the news nuggets are on that have been? Yeah, I mean, I think they have done a very effective job of showing that if Donald Trump didn't believe the election was stolen, it certainly wasn't because he hadn't been told again and again and again by the people who know the best, right? Sure. And and you hear in the narratives that were provided by Bill Stepien, who was Donald Trump's campaign manager, 25-year veteran of Republican campaigns, somebody who knows what he's talking about, that he raised these concerns or the likelihood that Trump lost as early as election night, right? Said, you know, let's hold off on a statement claiming victory. This looks a little dicey. And then in the subsequent few days, said, Mr. President, you didn't win. And we heard from campaign lawyers, campaign staffers, Bill Barr, as you point out, uh, Department of Justice leadership again and again and again, testifying that they told Donald Trump he had lost. Now, I would say the charitable view is that he's so detached from reality, it didn't sink in, which I think could lead to an interesting discussion of 25th Amendment questions. And like, then. Oh, wait, if you, so let me just use a totally different analogy. Steve Jobs walks up to every engineer at Apple and says, um, I want a thing that people hold in their hand that is a phone, a camera, a calculator, a computer, and everyone tells him it can't be done. Engineer after engineer tells him it can't be done. Um, is, and then Steve Jobs is like, no, it can be done. I mean, he's detached from reality, but he truly believes it can be done. He's not just- Yeah, but that's different. People. No, I don't think, oh, sorry, I don't think your analogy works. That is aspirational and speculative. This is based on facts. This is based on a reading of the evidence, the votes that's come in and deep and repeated investigations by the DOJ and by a wide variety of external uh, organs, external entities, showing that the votes that Donald Trump claimed were there or would come never in fact came. And the, the proposition was tested, right? I mean, this isn't something that was up for debate and you know they might be right and on the other hand they might be right trump's own people looked at it again and again and again jason miller campaign spokesman add his name to the list of people that i had and i think one of the things that was the most effective part of the testimony yesterday and i'm interested in, in both of your views on this sarah because you worked at doj david because you know you know so much about all of this stuff is is richard donahue um acting deputy Assistant Attorney General, who, acting Deputy Attorney General, acting Deputy Attorney General, who apparently was charged with overseeing the various investigations into all of these claims, and you know tells these stories about walking the president through the evidence and the investigations that they'd done, and the people that they'd spoken to, and the conclusions that they'd reached again and again and again and i think it really can't be stated enough that in almost all of these occasions not every single one these are people handpicked by donald trump some of these people are the most loyal people to donald trump in government in the world it's bill stepien handpicked by trump to come run the campaign bill barr chosen because trump wanted in part because he had drafted this memo talking about how the Mueller report was bunk and Trump wanted somebody who would fight for him in the way that Trump didn't think Jeff Sessions was fighting for him. Handpicked because he was so pro-Trump. Again and again and again, you had these officials who are now saying in effect, Donald Trump is crazy, like that was crazy, who were people who are not just sympathetic to Trump's arguments, wanted Trump to prevail, but people who were Trump loyalists now saying in unambiguous terms, he was wrong, we told him, and he's crazy. Am I crazy, David? I think the virtue of the testimony is not in Trump knew, okay, that he was wrong. Because I think that the fact that he defaulted to Giuliani and Sidney Powell and people kind of told him what he wanted to hear, 
is, is evidence to me that he thought that Barr was wrong and Stepien was wrong and Miller was wrong. The issue to me is, did he have a reasonable basis to believe that he was right? To me, that's the key question is, did he, and that's what the value of that testimony is, is that he had, as you said, all of these people who were appointed by him, who are, that it's his handpicked team, who are walking him through the evidence. And so therefore, when he is engaging with Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, he has no reasonable basis to believe that there are 12,000 votes more out there for him, for example. So I think this is an example where maybe the the committee, the commission gets about just a little bit further over its skis than is necessary. Because what you're what you're really wanting to prove to America is that either he knew this was fraud, I mean that this there was no fraud, or he had no reasonable basis to believe that there was fraud. And to me, that's the that's the key message to send. Did he believe it? Maybe, maybe not. Did he have reasonable basis to believe it? Definitely not. So how much does it matter? And I want to get to some specific legal questions, but just in terms of, of public opinion, maybe the answer for, from both of you is it doesn't matter much. How much does it matter that Donald Trump telegraphed exactly what he was going to do here? I mean, if you go hmm. back and look at the things that he was saying in April, he was saying yeah. there's going to be fraud. The only way I'll lose this, this is a standard campaign line for, for almost six months. The only way I would lose this campaign is if there's fraud. That was a core part of the plan. Jonah had a very good um, G file in November of yeah. 2020, three weeks after the election, where he said, look, this was the plan all along. We just have to wake up to the fact that Donald Trump was telling us that he was going to say he didn't lose. And then I think the question was, does it matter that he planned this? And did we think he was going to cheat? I mean, I think that's part of what caught so many people by surprise was his aggressive and sort of bonkers effort to cheat. Sarah? Two, th two things on that. One, um, let me provide an alternate version of that, which is Donald Trump truly believed the only way he could lose to someone like Joe Biden, who he did not respect, does not respect in any way, was if the election was rigged against him. So he was saying that. And then when he lost the election, he truly believed that he couldn't have lost it to Joe Biden. And so there's a just a different way to, I think, look at all of that. There was no plan. It's just actually what Donald Trump thought. As far as public opinion, I think it's very relevant because, and this has happened over and over again with Donald Trump, because he always says those things, you never end up with a smoking gun, right? It would be one thing if they, um, during the course of this investigation, uncovered Donald Trump saying that, um, you know, he thought there would be fraud in the election six months beforehand, but he was saying it publicly. So, um, you know, I, I have this very specific memory. Um, uh, <laughs> this is from my time at the Department of Justice of being in the East Wing. The West Wing was closed for renovations. And so we were in the residence and the president this is maybe um, Charlottesville happened on a Saturday. Uh, this was maybe that Monday, like so 48 hours later. And without, um, there's plenty of books about what happened in this meeting. Uh, John Carl's book has a particularly uh, accurate, I will say version of it, hmm. but I don't feel like I'm at liberty to discuss it. Um, but that's all to say, like he was saying things that were absolutely bonkers in that mm -hmm. meeting that blew my mind so much so that when I went back to the Department of Justice, I immediately felt like I needed to go talk to another senior political appointee about what had been said. No sooner did we finish that conversation than Donald Trump goes out and publicly says basically everything he said in that meeting. Now, publicly, <laughs> he said the thing about good people on both sides, praising Robert E. Lee, um, and so again, I think other presidents would be hung up by the bombshell of like what they had said privately, contradicting or further adding, shedding light on what they said publicly, but not Donald Trump because he said all of that publicly, Steve. I think that's actually part of the reason why there's such low interest um, in these 
hearings broadly, although, and I hope we get to this later, the viewership numbers have certainly been higher than expected. Yeah, mm -hmm. they have been. I want to, let me ask about that. There's a really interesting um, anecdote. Jonathan Swan from Axios, terrific reporter. We all know him. Um, I think does really good work. His reporting is great. His his written work. The accent's great. amazing. Breaks the stories. <laughs> New Zealander, fantastic accent. He did a, a terrific. By the way, I can't tell if you're trolling him by saying he's from New Zealand, even though you know he's from Australia, or if that was just a. Sick I really burn. thought he was from New Zealand. Is he not from New Zealand? He's Australian. Oh well, of course. Well, thanks for oh, that's fact checking. So funny. In real time. <laughs> I can't wait to tell him. him you said that. Tell him I said all of the nice stuff about him. Please don't tell him I got it. <laughs> you know who I get him confused with is Hamish McKenzie from Substack, which mm. publishes our news. Oh yeah, I mean. All, all the, the Australian, time. all the people enough, from the enough, they all look people. the same. Yeah, they're all the same. You people. Um, <laughs> so in 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 this terrific Australian reporter's post-election report, he he did um he did a series of written stories, but he did a podcast. I think it's it's called How It Happened, or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it is called How It Happened. It's a six-part podcast series 20 minutes of podcast very i mean you can you know you can do it on one long walk and he reports this meeting that takes place i want to say in mid to late december and by this time it was well known among people who were reporting on the white house that there had been this pretty massive split between what bill stepien in his testimony yesterday called team normal Mm -hmm. And then the Giuliani, Sidney Powell, total wacko crowd. And that Trump was, as these people weren't telling him what he wanted to hear, he increasingly wanted to hear from these people. So, which John, by the way, I think it goes to David's point. I think there's actually, they've been presenting plenty of evidence that Donald Trump did believe this it's just that he didn't have a reasonable basis to but mm -hmm. i do i just so, don't think they've shown that he actually didn't believe it so i'm not sure well let me two things one i'm not sure it really matters if they show that he did that he believed it or didn't believe it i think totally it matters agree. that that it totally that shows that. that he was told repeatedly that he shouldn't believe it that's to totally. me what is most important but Jonathan Swan had really interesting detail in this in this podcast. I would say we would link it in the show notes, but we have no show notes because this is Dispatch Live. <laughs> um, maybe we'll pop it at the bottom of the morning dispatch for people who, who need a, a, a link to it. Anyway, at one point in this terrifically report, he does it all on deep background, which means he doesn't quote anybody, but he provides real in the room details and everybody wants to talk to him. And this is what Bob Woodward has done with his books for years. You say, Talk to me on deep background. And then I don't think Jonathan does this as much as Woodward does, but th the trade-off is you'll be able to help shape the story, right? But it allows mm -hmm. reporters to go and confirm everything that are that that's being said. Anyway, Jonathan has this anecdote about a call that Trump does with Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, the sort of team crazy. And he's got a lot of team normal in his office in the Oval, right? And at one point in the call, I believe it's Sidney Powell is going on and on. And it's, I think, again, just, just, just by recollection, it was her conspiracy about Dominion and the Venezuelans and Hugo Chavez. And this is a legacy of the CIA. I mean, just totally off the wall stuff, insane, no supporting evidence whatsoever. And Trump throughout this call mutes her and rolls his eyes and says to these people like, do you believe how crazy she is? And then, you know, takes her off a of mute and engages her a little bit and then mutes her again and says, this is insane, isn't it? And then, you know, engages her again. If that's true, and we haven't heard that yet from the, the January 6th committee, and maybe we won't, but I trust Jonathan Swan's reporting, that would also show that he did, he got it. Like he was in on the joke, sort of. I agree that if, People can nail that down with someone on the record saying that that's what happened. That's the the closest I've heard to disproving the, yeah, no, he just was detached from reality, like Bill Barr said, and wanted to believe the people who he wanted to believe, regardless of whether they had any evidence or sobriety to uh, believe that. David, I want to come to you and your, your newsletter tonight, which was fantastic on the $250 million grift. Um, but before we get there, are you, are both of you, are you surprised at the number of people 
and this is why I think, and we're going to get to the, the the question of whether this will matter and uh, whether it changes you know, how it affects our politics. Are you surprised that the number of people who have testified that they were in these meetings and said, yeah, look, we all knew, like, this is not mm -hmm. a thing. Because one of the things that's been frustrating, we've talked about it here, we've talked about it on Dispatch Podcast, has been listening to this kind of stuff as reporters on an off the record basis. And we can go to people and say, trust us, people are telling us they all knew. It's very different when you have the people in their own voices saying, oh yeah, I was in this meeting and we told him and it was crazy and he didn't listen. And does it matter? Do you think, do you think that matters? So the only thing I'm surprised about is how blunt some of the language has been. Like that, yeah. that, you know, I've been in a million depositions in my life and witnesses are in almost every circumstance, very cautious, very circumspect, very coached. But what surprised me now, they've pulled out excerpts. We haven't seen the whole, you know, the whole period, right. you know, but like the, the excerpt that um, Liz Cheney released, tweeted out of, oh gosh, and I'm blanking on the attorney. Eric Hirschman. Name. Eric Hirschman tells a very vivid anecdote. Another, uh, by the way, just another lawyer handpicked by Donald Trump because mm -hmm. he was so loyal to come into the White House. He tells a very vivid anecdote of very directly and aggressively confronting John Eastman on January 7th. And a lot of that is kind of, a lot of that is self-serving in the moment. Um, I've been, so I'm not surprised that people are delivering self-serving testimony that says, I wasn't the crazy one. Okay, right. that doesn't surprise me. What has surprised me is sort of how blunt it's been and how sort of aggressive some of it has been. Again, as I'll say, that's yanking a few segments out of a larger and longer deposition that probably might have a lot more nuance and hedging in different places. But I would say that's the only thing that's really surprised me. But you get people under oath, you 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 put them in a position where they would either have to defend the indefensible or distance themselves from the indefensible. There's a long and, and a long tradition of people in Washington who are in the room where it happened, dis distancing themselves from the indefensible. Right. So that doesn't surprise me. Sarah, you? Um, so uh, separately, but no doubt in tune with the January 6th hearings going on, the Washington Post published a piece uh, late last night or maybe first thing this morning, inside the explosive Oval Office confrontation three days before January 6th. And it's about the effort to uh, replace the acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen, because by this point, Bill Barr's resigned, um, to replace acting attorney Jeff Rosen, who agreed with Bill Barr. There was absolutely no evidence of fraud um, with Jeffrey Clark, the acting head of the civil division and the Senate confirmed head of the environmental division. Um, <laughs> it's a crazy story. Where does, mm -hmm. so can, can, can you give us sort of the animated yeah. version of that and, and tell us where that ranks in the sort of, if you're reaching down to get him, where is he in the, the DOJ bureaucracy? Well, I guess what's really crazy about it is they didn't reach down to get him. He reached up. Uh, yeah, right, right. So, it happened reg regularly. So, okay, here's the rough version of the story. Um, and I'll, I'll add in my own color as someone who worked there and with Jeff Clark. So uh, about halfway into my tenure, Jeff Clark gets confirmed as the head of the Environment um, and Natural Resources Division. Um, this is where, for instance, um, animal trafficking is prosecuted, as well as um, energy-related litigation. Um, on, if, if DOJ was a high school, there's maybe, like the tax division is cooler than ENRD. Now, they do have a giant stuffed bear in their office. And so like, <laughs> you do want to go visit that. But otherwise, um, these lawyers rarely get the sexy cases, you know, like, <laughs> um, I always really liked uh, promoting their press releases, because they were super feel good about 
you know, the various animals that they had found. Um, but they were like never the most lovable animals. It was like <laughs> snake eggs and stuff. Um, but this is where Jonah would want to work if he worked in the DOJ without a doubt. I wanted to work there. I mean, this is this is where Jonah and I would go for sure. Um, these lawyers also generally, though, are have a specific expertise in environmental litigation that the animal parts actually even a relatively small part of um, that division, but a lot of energy um, and environmental lawyers. Okay, so he's the Senate confirmed head of that and like could not pick this person out of a lineup. He had come from Kirkland and Ellis, a white shoe law firm, like one of David, I don't know, certainly the top five law firms in the yeah. country. And I think profits for partner, maybe the highest right now, like the premier law firm. He's a Harvard undergrad, Georgetown law clerkships, like on paper in 2018, this guy looks like he could co-host AO with David French most normal <laughs> nerd lawyer ever. And everything is fine. The only like red flag um, seems to come up after I've already left in uh, 2019, maybe early 2020, uh, he is put in as the acting civil, head of the civil division. And then later in 2020, he starts asking for the acting to be removed from his title. So the civil division is the opposite of the environmental group. This is like where the, the, the meat is, you know, like the S the solicitor general's office might be like the president of the student body in high school, but the civil division is the football team. It's like large and it's like where the smart, cool, whatever kids go. Criminal division is like maybe the basketball team. You could switch them up, but like those are the two big ones, right? Civil division, criminal division. So he's now the acting head of the civil division because they're out of humans, it appears. And he keeps pushing to have the acting taken off, which is like kind of just a, like a weird ego flex because it doesn't change anything about your job to have that title switch. All right, that's like the only red flag. Now, fast forward to post-election and all of a sudden, you know, Bill Barr is saying there's no fraud. Jeff Rosen, no fraud. Rich Donahue, no fraud. And Jeff Clark's like, hold my beer. There's tons of fraud, crazy stuff. He's like a bamboo ballot guy. And he basically reaches out to the president and is like, Mr. President, you're getting terrible advice from all these people at DOJ who are my bosses. Um, I absolutely believe that there's huge amounts of fraud. And fast forward a little bit, and here's a letter that all of these people at DOJ should sign. Um, Jeff Rosen, the acting attorney general, finds out about this meeting and reads in the riot act. The problem is Jeff Rosen can't fire him because he is Senate confirmed for that environmental job. And says, so just never do it again. You do not get to go talk to the president without telling me in advance. And you certainly don't get to not tell me after. So what does Jeffrey Clark do? He does it again. Uh, absolutely does it again and says, fire all them, make me acting attorney general. I'm going to overturn this election for you. Now, he also sends this letter to Rosen and Donahue and says, you all need to sign this. It's really important. And they're, <laughs> they write him back and say, we will not sign this or anything like it. That's insane. You have no idea what you're talking about. There's a lot of questions over who drafts this letter because frankly, Jeff Clark has no ability to draft a letter. He has no ex expertise in campaign um, election law at all. And this letter appears to be written by someone who knows what they're talking about. So there's some presumption that someone else drafts this letter to give it to Jeff Clark in the first place. But regardless, we're getting to my favorite scene, which is the three hour meeting in the Oval Office where Jeff Clark makes his pitch to Donald Trump to fire everyone else in the room and make him acting attorney general. And the gloves are off. So Rosen and Donahue are very clear and they say, Mr. President, the reason not to do this is because hundreds of political appointees at the Department of Justice will resign. Yeah. And mm -hmm. by the way, he's not gonna win. He, there's no there there. He's not telling you the truth. And uh, it's going to embarrass you. And that will be your legacy. It, and it will gut the Department of Justice as well. But more importantly, it will embarrass you. 
And then um, uh, Donald Trump turns to Steve Engel, the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, which is sort of the professorship of the Department of Justice. And is like, well, you won't resign, Engel. And he's, you will leave me no choice. I will resign too. I mean, Engel had been advising the president on the law for four years at this point, nearly. <laughs> so uh, then Pat Cipollone calls this a murder-suicide pact. <laughs> And he's the White House counsel, the top lawyer at the White House. That's right. <laughs> uh, and Donahue, the DAG, the acting deputy attorney general, tells Trump that Clark has no qualifications to be attorney general. This is a quote. He's never been a criminal attorney. He's never conducted a criminal investigation in his life. He's never been in front of a grand jury, much less a trial jury. And Clark, you know, pipes up and it says, well, I've done a lot of very complicated appeals and civil litigation, environmental litigation, and things like that. That's right, Donahue says. You're an environmental lawyer. How about you go back to your office and we'll call you when there's an oil spill? <laughs> it's like the sickest law burn I've ever <laughs> heard. I love that so much. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's, so to take an interesting and funny story and to, to turn it to something a little more serious, it was really important that people like that spoke up, right? I mean- It goes to this whole question of you wanted good people in government and even maybe you wanted those good people to compromise along the way to keep their jobs. Like it's it like, I don't, I wrote it, you know, Washington Post piece about how I started to believe that's not true. This is the counter example. Right. Mm -hmm. Is right. that you needed exactly. people in that room. I still don't, I don't know what I believe because I think that if the president's elected, you need to show people what they elected. And in some ways it was a big disservice to the country that they never got a full glimpse of who Donald Trump was because the American people were being protected by all of these good people in government. Um, but this is a good counter. Now, Steve, to your point, here's what's interesting. Trump's response. All right. So Donahue just did the sick oil spill burn <laughs> and Cipollone has called it a murder suicide pact. Everyone else has said hundreds of Department of Justice officials will resign. Um, by the way, I think they were massively underestimating the number. There's 120,000 people who work at the Department of Justice. It would certainly have been in the thousands. Wow. Mm. Wow. Um, Trump says he's going to turn down Clark and he turns to Jeff Clark and says, I appreciate your willingness to do it. Um, I appreciate you being willing to suffer the abuse, but the reality is you're not going to get anything done. These guys are all going to quit. Everyone else is going to resign. It's going to be a disaster. The bureaucracy will eat you alive. And no matter how much you want to get things done in the next few weeks, you won't be able to get it done. And it's not going to be worth the breakage. That's a fascinating glimpse into Donald Trump the guy who's not on camera versus Donald Trump, the guy who is in the sense that um, Steve, like, I don't think this means that Donald Trump doesn't believe the election was stolen, but at that point he believed that the only way to stay in power was through Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I mean, at, at that point, the, the, effort to pressure Mike Pence was well underway. I mean, this is they're running on parallel tracks. Yeah. They are this ready is where to Yes. Overturning the election falls and the Mike Pence one becomes the yeah. only track left. So well, David, in, I want to David jump in on that real quick and then I want to turn to to your your newsletter, which is it's such a fat. I mean, your argument is great. The the details of it are horrifying, but we need to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't real quick on the Mike Pence plan, you could see the appeal to that over the DOJ plan, because the appeal to it, as, as outlined by Eastman, is you persuade this one guy, one guy, yeah, this one guy who's been right by your side for four years, he's been your guy for four years, you persuade this one guy, and one of the scenarios, because we, the Eastman spin has been, oh, I only wanted it to be kicked back to the states again which would have been catastrophic all by itself. But one of the scenarios was that Eastman just, I mean, that, that Pence just goes ahead and declares Trump the winner. That was one of the scenarios that Eastman mapped out. And so I could- I easily, declare bankruptcy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that was this, that was the obvious appeal. Persuade this one guy who's been with you every step of the way, and you can put the full pressure of MAGA land on him. And if he crumbles, if he cracks, all bets are off. I so you can totally see the appeal to that to Trump over the DOJ plan. And on the on my newsletter, which is titled non-provocatively in true dispatch style, how to steal $250 million <laughs> is I really want people to understand, you know, I, sometimes I feel like I, I, when I go into the Northeast or the West Coast or whatever, I feel like I'm kind of the MAGA translator because 85% of my community voted for Trump. Um, it is, I'm around everything from the reluctant Trump voter to sort of the normal gop -er to the the hardcore and the hardcore is what we're talking about who supplied that 250 million this goes to sarah's small donor uh argument that she's made for a long time which i think more people need to hear which is these small donors are not representative of the american public they are often radicalized base partisans and what i tried to do was put people in the mind of the radicalized base partisan and and the first thing you have to understand is that the radicalized base partisan does not have a hold your nose view of Trump at all. They have a view of Trump as a great man who is engaged in a great sacrifice for his country, a yeah. self-made billionaire in their telling who in his seventies said, I'm going to step aside from all of my wealth to save this country in a way that nobody else would. And I'm gonna brave all the slings and arrows to do it. And then under that telling, all of the slings and arrows, all of the opposition from the resistance to never Trump to everything is further validation of his heroism. It's a further validation of the initial narrative, which is I'm stepping in, I'm gonna take all the fire. And when the fire comes, and the other thing about it that I think is really, really important is where these so-called anti-anti-Trump people fit in this. These are the people who, kind of made a living over the last several years, not being pro-Trump, but they're going to go around debunking all of the excesses, the left and the never Trump world and, and taking on Trump and how important they were to this piece of the puzzle. Because if you're super MAGA, what you would do is you would look at some of these individuals and say, hey, they weren't even on the Trump train and they can see what CNN's doing. And it's not that CNN wasn't doing some stuff that would be excessive, but it was you fit that in. And then the last piece of this puzzle, which I think is really important for people to realize, is this religious element to it. And there are numerous biblical examples of sort of a person who's designated by God, uh, appointed by God to accomplish God's purpose, and then takes in huge amounts of incoming and persecution and all of that. And so you connect this prophecy angle with it that said he is the man who God has anointed to to save this country. And all of the resistance to him was seen as validation of his heroic role. And that's where I think people don't understand in like the hyper MAGA mindset, why is it that people were immune to this scandal and this scandal and this scandal and this scandal and this scandal? They didn't view it as a scandal. They viewed them all as an attack. Yeah. It was this attack and this attack and this attack and this attack. Well, we expected that. We expected that he's the man who's arisen. This is what he's doing. He's invited. This is what he's death. doing. So back back us up just a second and and tell people. I, mean, I, I suspect there are a lot of people who have real jobs and weren't able to watch the hearings. What is the claim from the January sixth committee with respect to the money that Donald Trump raised? He raised, depending on how you count it, between one hundred million, two hundred fifty million. To, to win the election back, right? To, to fight back against this election that they claim Joe Biden stole. Yeah. So what happened? What are their claims? What's their argument? So basically the argument is that he raised a total of $250 million for essentially an entity, an organization. I don't have it right in front of me right now because I'm looking at y'all. Um, an entity, an organization that didn't exist. And, and what that money went to primarily was something called a Save America PAC. Um, and all of this money poured into the Save America PAC. And then when you looked at where the money then went out, the money went out to Trump allied or Trump affiliated ent entities. A Mark so, Meadows nonprofit, the America's right. Principal Project, all of right. these things sort of in the Trump orbit, some of them got over a million dollars from these yeah. from these things yeah yeah 
Exactly. Now, there was some confusion early on because Kimberly Guilfoyle was paid $60,000 for two minutes of her time to introduce Don Tr Donald Trump Jr. at the January 6th rally, which is a her boyfriend. boyfriend I, I just want to put this out Beyonce. there for all, all dispatch members. I will go anywhere and speak for two <laughs> minutes for $60,000. I'll do it. I'll do it. I will. I'll sacrifice in that way. So she's paid $60,000 for two minutes. And there was some speculation that that was, that came from the, the 250 million, that that was sort of part of the grift. But CNN reported today that it appears that Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk's outfit paid her the 60K. But we're all talking about sort of a same grift churn out there where there was an enormous amount of money coming into Trump and Trump allied entities, which then was dispensed in large sums to Trump allies. And so that's part of the issue in it. And it looks to all the world like a just a gigantic con, which is not the same thing as saying that it's illegal. Right, right. Yeah. Which is which is a question. We, I, I mean, I've got about fifty questions I want to get to. If you have questions, feel free to drop them uh, in the chat on the right hand side of your screen. I want to take a question from Walt that is very similar to a question that I wanted to ask anyway. Walt labels his a question slash rant. <laughs> I like I'm annoyed already. by the more reasonable non-Trumpy voices on the right, not at the dispatch telling me I shouldn't watch or care about the hearings. The more they object, the more I want to keep watching. So are they truly trying to convince us not to pay attention and that the hearings are of no value? And if so, why are they saying that? Or are they doing a reverse psychology thing to get <laughs> us to watch, bask in the shock, shame, and schadenfreude? Sarah. Uh, no, I don't think that's, I, I don't think it's reverse psychology. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a sense that Democrats are kind of getting away with one here. Um, you know, Axios looked and Democratic campaign committees have sent 500 emails in the last month fundraising off of January 6th. Uh, these hearings, what they're finding, the committee, and the timing you know, if if I were sort of running a Democratic campaign committee or a Republican one for that matter, um, and you're you're looking at November as D-Day, uh, you want to have as much money in the bank before campaigning really starts in September. So doing a big fundraising thing in June is pretty perfect. And having all of the networks help you by putting it in prime time, that works really well. And the Republicans don't get the equivalent help from networks is sort of the sense. And so, yeah, they don't want to reward that with viewership. What's interesting, of course, um, is that the viewership is the highest. It's tied for the highest of any event during the Trump administration, the impeachments, um, the first one, the second one. Uh, it's tied with the opening day of the Kavanaugh, the second Kavanaugh hearings where Christine Blasey Ford um, was testifying. So about 20 million people tuned into that first night of the January 6th hearings. That's very high. It's certainly higher than any of the three games of the NBA playoffs, for instance. Um, you know, it's pretty low compared to the Super Bowl, but like by way of comparison, you know, Tucker Carlson gets roughly three, three and a half million people a night watching him. So 20 million people over all of these platforms is significant. Now, is it politically significant? No, I will bet my bottom dollar that all 20 million people to a person already had their mind made up about what they thought about January 6th and the hearings confirmed their priors, whatever that may be. Um, but nevertheless, for Democrats, I think it is overall helpful because there are some people where this will be motivating and they're getting turned on right now, whether they're getting turned on as donors or just more energized about the upcoming midterm elections, no harm either way. The harm comes from the idea that this looks like Democrats aren't paying attention to a bunch of other stuff, that they're so focused on January 6th, they're not doing anything about gas prices, they're not doing anything about 
um, you know, inflation. And then they're, you know, flim flamming around on dealing with their left flank on maybe this gun bill, et cetera. Uh, so the argument would go that that will help Republicans, you know, while they're focused on something that happened two years ago, we're here fighting to bring gas prices down. But frankly, we haven't seen a lot of that messaging from the right. Yeah. David, is this politically meaningless? Do you think this is politically no. meaningless? No, I don't think it's politically meaningless, but I do think it's not material for the midterm. Okay, so here, here's, here's how I'm going to distinguish it. I think the mid it's not so meaningful for the midterm you know why because not one person is going to be voting for donald trump or not in the midterm when they go into the voting booth they're going to be voting for somebody or for or against somebody else entirely uh and they're going to be voting in a lot of cases even yeah. though he's not on the ballot actually. right right even though he's not on the ballot but there's a long history and tradition of sort of okay now we're going to put the other party in the one of the two houses of the Cong of congress to be a check you know there's a sort of simple appeal to that so I don't think it's super material to the midterm. Could be wrong about that. Here's where I think it could matter uh, on two counts. One is, does it grease the political skids for an indictment? In other words, ease the political fallout for a potential indictment? Or does it help inoculate a just a little, a bit more people against another Trump run? So that's where I wonder it could have an impact. And and because I do think he is starting to lose his grip on the GOP. Um, what happened in Georgia? Is your knee giving you a feeling again, Paul? <laughs> I think he is. I think he is. What happened in Georgia, I think, was meaningful when Brad Raffensperger won and, and Brian Kemp won. I think... Um, and I think that 20 million people watching is meaningful, but it's much more meaningful for Donald Trump than it is for the GOP, at least in my view. So David's more right than Sarah. Um, <laughs> the I think I think it could have implications in the Republican presidential primaries. I can't imagine even somebody running as a Trump-friendly Republican, other than Donald Trump that anyone will embrace the stolen election stuff, right? I mean, Mike Pompeo is not going to, Tom Cotton's not going to, Mike Pence- That's against their know. interest, because if they say the election was stolen, then why aren't they supporting Donald Trump who had the election stolen? Sure, from but 50 plus percent of Republicans right now are saying they believe that and they believe Donald Trump. And we know that Donald Trump wants to talk about virtually nothing other than the election having Wait, been stolen. Wait, I want to take and issue with that you poll you just cited. If you ask Democrats whether they believe that Donald Trump was uh, actually elected in twenty in January of twenty seventeen, the number is only a, like six points off of the Republican number right now, which tells you it has nothing to do with the big lie. It just turns out that people will answer that question roughly whoever they voted for in the last election. Just wanted to say that. Sure, maybe. I mean, there are enough polls that have found the same thing. I think that dynamic. But again, is Democrats answered the exact same way the, in twenty seventeen. Part of the explanation, right? But that was also at the height of all of the finger pointing and blaming on the the Russia stuff, right? I mean, you had lots of Democrats who were at the time making that argument. Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's become um, impractical and untenable for sane Republicans to even want to do the flirtation with the stolen election stuff at the presidential level. And the Washington Post had a very interesting story today looking at the 100 plus Republicans who have fully embraced the stolen election narrative and are campaigning on it in some cases as the center of their campaign. So that's that's happening. We know that it's happening. I think that's a more difficult case for them to make today than it was at the beginning of this week. Now, it might not matter in a Republican primary at the congressional level in the 2022 midterms. I do think it will matter as reality. I mean, Trump is out on this limb with Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani. Other people who have spoken about a stolen election are being thoroughly discredited by the committee on the record by these people, again, handpicked Trump loyalists closest to the data, saw it up close, said it in real time. This is all BS, to quote Bill Barr. 
I think that's going to end up mattering. Not I agree with you that it won't matter right now, David. I think that will end up mattering because it's so crazy. I Sorry, like David, Matthew. I jumped on, I, I stepped on you. No, 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 I was just saying you didn't quite quote Bill Barr, but. Right, I, well, I'm trying wanna, to keep it clean. I want to, I, I, I know I'm not hosting, but I want to answer Matthew's question that just popped up, which was how do we convince ordinary Republicans that the <clears throat> Eastman memo is dangerous, as dangerous as it was? How shall I put this? I think first you have to tell ordinary ordinary Republicans that the Eastman memo exists. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, you know, I think that um, the number of people we are really, 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 as a general course, overestimating how much people already know about January sixth because there's a lot of people who checked out. They saw January sixth and they started to check out of politics, sure. so they. Yes. They have not been diving into all the twists and turns. And if you are someone who's very much a red American, I don't think that you're really tracking the Eastman memo and the shadow slate of electors. This is not something that talk radio is talking about. This is not something that Fox primetime is talking about. This is just not on the, this is not something that is part of that media ecosystem really at all. And so, you know, a lot of the facts of January 6th, that something that kind of bothers me is I have people who know better saying this things like on, on Twitter, everybody knows all this stuff. Yeah. Fact check false. No, they do not know this stuff. So I would say to Matthew, job number one is explain that the Eastman memos exist and what they say. And then if somebody doesn't quite grasp that, hey, you know, a president can't a vice president can't declare the loser, the winner, if they don't grasp the seriousness of that, of that, you know, then there's a little bit more spade work that needs to be done. But the main spade work is just communicating facts that for a lot of us who are hyper-focused on this are second nature. And, and revealing facts. I mean, that's something I think that is just underappreciated. And you have, you know, the anti-anti-Trump people, I think, David, that you mentioned earlier have every incentive to say this is all old this is all old because they've been telling us that it was no big deal almost from the beginning there was a week there where they acknowledged that it was maybe wasn't great and then they <laughs> then they started pretty quickly taking their cues from donald trump and kevin mccarthy and others saying this isn't really that important and i think what were the the significance potentially and look i am let me just say up front and clearly i may be guilty of wish casting here like I want this, the January 6th committee to matter because it matters. I think it really matters in substance. I think it matters in terms of the, the, how we govern our country. Um, and so I hope it matters. I think it matters because people, when they think of January 6th, I am convinced, having talked about it with a lot of people, including a lot of tr Trump fans, think of it as this like one day spasm of violence that may yeah. or may not have been connected to trump at all right maybe not they think that you know liz cheney and others are, are way out over their skis that donald trump had anything to do with it that even knew he gave this speech but he also said be peaceful you know i mean there, there's there's a lot of questions about it and then separately there was this sort of stolen election claim and the two are kind of mildly related in fact i think what we've seen what we've seen if you've been paying careful attention to the reporting on this but what we are now seeing in real time with the revelations that the committee is providing these are all connected this was a plan it was a pretty well coordinated plan it was an incompetently executed plan thank goodness but this was a plan. And I think what we're going to learn, particularly as we get to the Mike Pence um, part of this, is we will see just how much of a plan it was and just how much Donald Trump was at the center of the plan. And I think there's a distinction to be made between Donald Trump being at the center of the plan and Donald Trump directing every aspect of the plan. But I don't think there's any doubt he was at the center. All right, sorry, I blabbed a lot. I invited more questions and now we haven't taken more, but we have a bunch. So let me try to zip through these pretty quickly because we, uh, we want to get four to minutes. Yeah. <laughs> what are the round. chances, very quick answer from our lawyers. Hmm. <laughs> I said that as a joke. What are the chances 
that Donald Trump can be charged with wire fraud for fundraising off the big lie. David, basically your uh, your newsletter day. Low. Low. Okay. Low. Good. That was that was that was really great. Um, Elizabeth, wouldn't the fact that Trump offered the National Guard to protect the Capitol building on January 2nd kind of offset the idea that he wanted the Capitol to be attacked? You answer that, Steve. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think these, I, I, let's just say I don't think Donald Trump has a particularly well-ordered mind. And I think he was doing, particularly in that time period after, well, you can date it to December 23rd, you can date it to January 2nd. There were a lot of things going on and he was grasping anything he possibly could. Um, I do think that the committee should look at the security at the Capitol. I do think Nancy Pelosi bears some blame for the way that security was handled at the Capitol. Um, but I don't think that Trump having apparently requested that absolves him of, um, of culpability for what we know he did and, and said later. And I think we're going to learn a lot more about. If the commander in chief of the United States Army wanted military assets at the Capitol on January 6th, he could have had military. They would have been there. The, yeah. And we know, I mean, I think this was one of the most sort of um, interesting things and sort of compelling things to come out of the Thursday night committee hearings was there's this sort of paragraph where Liz Cheney ticks off all of these things that that happened that Trump should have done but didn't that Mike Pence did do in order to address the fact that the tap capital was being attacked and I think if you're talking about what Donald Trump wanted that's a pretty compelling counterpoint right next um, one Eliana can someone please tell me the good faith reason why the Pennsylvania Republican legislature left in place a law making it illegal to open mail in ballots sorry mail in ballots before election day uh well i guess i would say that that's the status quo in several states and so the best argument is that changing the status quo is hard and if you can't sort of agree on when they can open them or what the new rules would be that you end up leaving the old rules in place and certainly the other states that have all had that rule for a long time weren't doing it for some nefarious reason it was thought that if you were opening the ballots in advance you could leak results um, ballots could get lost that it's just better to do it all the day before i think we just know now that it causes more problems than it solves yeah John, Jonathan, we answered your question, even though I didn't ask it exactly in your terms. Um, a question from Paul. After seeing <laughs> Democrats run ads propping up Trump-endorsed candidates, what are the odds Democrats really want him to be the nominee in 2024 because they think it'd be easier to beat, he'd be easier to beat than anyone else? David. They absolutely there. do not want Trump to be the nominee. They are terrified that Trump will win and become president. They're propping up candidates who they think they can beat in these races because they think they have, um, you know, enough on them slash they know their voters well enough. Uh, I think they're playing with fire. I think they're playing with fire even if they're right. Um, I think they're, they're sorry. I think they're morally bankrupt even if they're right that they can beat all these candidates i think they're playing with fire and that several of these candidates will in fact win david you agree concur yeah hard to take them seriously when they're talking about the death of democracy and funding but, the people they claim are killing it but i do think that they are i agree completely with sarah that they are terrified of donald trump winning again in 2024 like i don't right. think there's a smart democrat alive who's saying yeah, let's take on Trump in the general election again. No. So terrified, in fact, that they are going to run Joe Biden again because he is the only Democrat who has beaten Donald Trump. Do mm -hmm. you think they're going to run Joe Biden again? Mm -hmm. I can't imagine. I don't think they have a choice. I don't think he runs. If Joe Biden doesn't run, is he going to endorse Kamala Harris? If he doesn't endorse Kamala Harris, then it's that's going to be a scramble. It's going to be Kamala Harris, and there's it's a free be for ugly. all. And yeah, who on the Democratic side can beat Donald Trump? Who can also get through a primary? Steak dinner tonight. Okay. Bet with you, Joe Biden is not the Democratic nominee in 2024. Don't, and we also have the bet that Donald Trump will be the nominee, right? Correct. Yeah, I'll, yeah. Double steak double dinner, double yeah. steak dinner. All right, <laughs> uh, that's good. So last one, and, and I know we're one minute over, we don't wanna go over too much, but this is. Uh-oh, yeah, I lost Steve. I did too. Oh, the gods said, I guess we're gonna end on time. 
There he is, but we can't hear there, you. Now he's muted. Unmute. You're trying. You're trying to kill me before the. Before <laughs> we're done. Um, That's what happens when you go over. God question, does answer our prayers. Question. <laughs> so bad. Question from Kay. Does the lack of a non-Jim Jordan Trump-friendly voice in the committee lessen how impactful it could be by denying necessary input for broader consensus and legitimacy across the political spectrum? Let me answer that question directly if you'd like. Let me change it a little bit. Uh, Andy McCarthy, our friend from National Review, had a, uh, a column that he wrote saying, in effect, and Kim Strasser from the Wall Street Journal had a similar column saying, in effect, look, the, the committee's not legitimate. They don't have, this is not the way that a legal proceeding would unfold. There's no defense here. You have these people who, regardless of whether they're partisan or not, they're all anti-Trump. They're teeing up a case that's meant to make Donald Trump look bad. And you don't have any of the kinds of counter arguments or procedural rules that you would have in a court of law that allow some kind of a defense, even if you think that there's not a great one. How much should that factor into how we think of what the committee is doing? David, I'll start with you. So I, I read Andy's piece and I do agree that there are things that effective cross-examination could do to make the committee, could make the whole process sharper. I'm a big believer in cross-examination as an instrument for discovering truth. It's one of the greatest fact-finding, truth-finding instruments the mind of man has ever created. So I am, I, I think good faith defense slash cross-examination is an important part of the process. And it also keeps an entity from going too far. So for example, to go back to the very beginning of the conversation when Sarah was talking to you about, did Trump, or did they establish that Trump knew all right. Well, if you're going to, what a good, what a, a good searching examination that would reveal that maybe not that he had a good faith belief that the, that the election was stolen, but is new or should have known. In other words, you're pulling back a little bit from those really damaging too far statements or not really damaging, but somewhat damaging too far statements that then critics can pick apart and pick apart and pick apart. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, that I'm, I'm interested in the, and in, in earth too, where it would have, where the Republicans would have set up a commission and not packed it with Jim Jordans and others like that. That's, that's the earth too. I wonder about. That's Sarah, a fine the, question, but can we do Joel's question last? We're going to do Joel's question, but I need you to answer this one first. Okay. I mean, you, you worry about this. I think if you if, if you want the committee to be credible, and I do, um, you worry about the, the non-response or the inability of people to um, offer some defense of Donald Trump, particularly when you have people like Adam Schiff on the committee, who's just partisan. Like the guy overstates his case again and again and again. He did it throughout the Russia collusion claims and arguments in a pretty significant way. I mean, I think there were reasons to be very concerned about what was happening in Trump world with Russia. I think the Mueller report elucidated a lot of those things. I think he didn't come close to, to pro proving what Adam Schiff said that they had. They didn't have it. Now Adam Schiff is going to be making, I think, similar arguments here in an effort to boost his standing, to, to get more cable TV hits. It looks like Jamie Raskin is going to do the same thing based on some of these early leaks. You have Democrats who I think are sort of primed to politicize this even more. One of the reasons I think the committee hearings have been effective so far is it has really been a just the facts presentation. Mm -hmm. If you get to that other stuff, will it be more obvious that we don't have this counter argument that David talks about? As being Not only so that, important. but it'll give a much, much bigger opening to Republicans to then provide their own cross-examination, if you will, um, without then any accountability. You know, part of how this could work and the way it should work um, is the cross-examination, then there's a rebuttal. So you like, you also can't have a cross-examination that goes too far. And so what you're going to have is basically both sides presenting only their case with no pushback from the other to hold them accountable. And it's sort of the worst case scenario, but I agree that we haven't had that yet, that they have not, they have been, um, doing a mostly just the facts. The problem is that even with a just the facts, 
you are still better off with a an also just the facts cross-examination. It makes both sides stronger. I think that's true. The one thing I would say, and I got into a little, I hate to even mention Twitter, but I get into a little Twitter back and forth with Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal about this. I think it's true in an in an ideal scenario, we would have had that. I think Democrats are to blame. I think Republicans are to blame. Both parties um, share the culpability of why we don't have that right now. Having said all that, it does matter when somebody like Donald Trump's campaign manager says, under oath, I went to him and said, you didn't win. And you have, you know, one after another after another of these people making that claim. I think you could evaluate those claims on their own, even if you don't have this, this pushback. But Steve, that's why you need cross-examination. I mean, that's why when someone gets on the stand in a murder trial and says, you know, he said he did it, the defense lawyer gets up and says, did, was he laughing when he said that? You know, like that's what cross-examination sure. does that even when the testimony looks damning, you want someone to ask the follow-up questions in part because if the answer is no, he was dead serious, like, well, that's good to know. Um, you just don't know what you don't know and you don't have cross-examination. Better, con better context is is always preferable. I think the the some of the stuff stands on its on its own. So the last question, and we are going, comes from Joel. Wait, double steak dinner at what steakhouse? That should be part of the bet. Um, <laughs> look, I'm so confident that that I'm going to win. I would say we do it at Rare Steakhouse in downtown DC, which I could not afford on my own. So. Sarah, will you be willing to buy me the steaks at Rare? We're going to take this offline because, uh, frankly, I need a place. <laughs> Maybe if you win, we go to Rare. But if I win, I really miss Ray's the steaks that had all-you-can-eat um, uh, creamed spinach and mashed potatoes with the steak, and they uh, have closed down due to tax evasion. So I'm just going to need to think of another place that has, or I'll just order all-I-can-eat creamed spinach. <laughs> yeah, that's growl. what I want. All right. Well, thank you all for joining. Sorry we went eight minutes long. We don't do that. We try to keep it to an hour. Uh, we don't want you to feel obligated to stick to us, stick with us for longer than than that hour. But I think this was a very good discussion. Helpful uh, to have both of you. Glad we did it. Thanks all for joining, and we'll see you next Tuesday at eight o'clock. Night. Okay.